iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one of the actors from the film, Alden Ehrenreich and Francis Ford Coppola. Please welcome from Talk Cinema, moderator Harlan Jacobson. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, just to set up a little bit what this film is, as you see, it's called Petro. It's going to open here at the Sunshine Theater on June 11th. If everyone in this room went, we would be a hit because there's only 300 seats in the theater. But um, it's a more personal film. It's when I started, uh, I was a theater student and uh, I was a playwriting major, and I, in those days, it was the late 50s, early 60s, and there were these spectacular films coming from Europe, from Italy, from France, from Sweden, from Japan, from England, from Germany, and I think the people of my generation, around my age, all really wanted to be that kind of a filmmaker, although we also loved the wonderful American uh, tradition and in those days, there were, believe it or not, there were two young American filmmakers that were very uh, inspiring because American directors were usually, you know, gentlemen like me in suits. And, uh, but there was Stanley Kubrick, who was 21 when I was first interested. And there was John Frankenheimer, who had done these beautiful live television production of Fantastic, and, 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 and it's really uh, uh, great to be able to uh, rent or buy a John Frankenheimer live television production. It's, they're amazing because they were done in real time, but they were really cinema. You could, I think what's available is one called The Comedian, starring Mickey Rooney and Mel Torme, and those were the American filmmakers, uh, of, of course, the quintessential boy director Orson Welles, uh, had made, I think, Citizen Kane around 1946 when he was about 26. So those were the things that really galvanized the people of my generation. Many of the directors you know are more or less my age or a little, little older, a little younger. But um, after having a whole career being Starting out writing original stories and, and scripts for movies, I, I, I did one called The Rain People when I was you know, in my 20s, and then I wrote The Conversation, but no, nobody would... It was very hard, as it is now, to get financing to make a movie like The Conversation, so we were just pretty much going broke in San Francisco until finally someone offered me a job, and that turned out to be The Godfather, so suddenly you know, everything changed and I found myself in a career that I hadn't anticipated. But the long and part of the short part of the story is that years later, having gone through the ups and downs of being a, a you know, regular director, although once again, even after a lot of success, when I wanted to make Apocalypse Now, absolutely nobody was willing to go in with that one uh, with for me or help me finance it. So I ended up putting up everything I had earned uh, from the Godfather films, which was an estate in Napa, as collateral to make Apocalypse Now. And those were very harrowing days. Thank you. Thanks. 
you know, and, you know I, I was married when I was around 21, 22, and I, I always loved children. I was a camp counselor as a teenager. And so I had a rule that if ever I was going to go uh, off to make a film, I always took my kids out of school and had them come with me. So they were all in the Philippines. And as that production went on and on and on, way beyond what it was supposed to, um, uh, my kids were playing on the sets. And my wife, who was uh, always, uh, even uh, when I first met her, she was an art student at UCLA, and she was very impatient playing the role of the wife and just being there. So I bought a 16-millimeter camera, and I said, here, you shoot footage of me making uh, this movie, hoping to have her stay, you know, and not take the kids and go home. So I would come home after working on that film and say things to my wife like, oh, God, this is the worst movie I ever saw. This movie is going to totally sink me. I'm going to get an F for this movie. This is terrible hoping that she would say, oh, no, Francis, it's going to be wonderful. You'll see. Instead, she'd say, would you wait a second? Say that again. I want to go and get the camera. <laughs> so that's how that film, uh, Heart, Hearts of Darkness, came about. I call it Watch Francis Suffer. <laughs> but ups and downs, this and that. Uh, finally, I found myself you know, growing older and saying, gee, I never really had the kind of career I wanted when I was young. I wanted to write scripts and make movies and, and, and uh, make personal movies. They used to call them art films, then they called them independent films. But really what it is, it's personal films. It's films you make because you just love movies and cinema and you want to learn about it and, and you never can learn everything there is about the cinema because it's an art form that's still being invented. It's only a hundred years old and no doubt there are people here who are going to add to the language of cinema and uh, um, so that's what I wanted. I wanted to in a way be a young filmmaker even though I certainly uh, wasn't young anymore. So I started I, I, Miracle of miracles, some of the various hobbies or th amusements I had in my life, love of wine and uh, this sort of thing, turned into a company that, uh, as the public's taste became interested in wine, I found I had this big company, and I thought, why don't I take a cue from my own daughter, Sophia? She goes off and makes a movie in Japan for a few million dollars and it's a wonderful success maybe you know I could just go off and make little films or personal films to finance them myself so I sort of began a second career and, and Youth Without Youth was the first film of my second career it's a film one thing about making personal films is you learn a lot because usually the subject matter is something you're very interested in uh, which is why it's personal and then making the film you come away with more knowledge so Youth Without Youth was sort of a, from the master Merce Eliade and he was, uh, he's sort of the father of comparative religion and I learned more philosophical things and the film was more cerebral and of course few people went to see it. <clears throat> so I said I understand that people really want to read about philosophy or such ideas I guess and and what people might want is to see a film that's more moving, that's more emotional, and what could I do uh, that I want to learn about? 
that would be more emotional. And I realized, well, I can write about something closer to home, my own, what makes me emotional. And what that was was my own family and to understand, you know, how I felt about a lot of the issues in my own family. It's a big Italian-American family, a lot of creative people, even my uncles and the older generation were conductors and composers and musicians and and like all families, you know, everyone would come over and we'd have all the uncles and the cousins and have a big dinner and drink wine and then I'd notice, well, you know, one uncle or one aunt wasn't invited anymore and I, as a kid I said, what, what, why are they not talking? That's an expression adults use, they're not talking, you know, with uncle so-and-so. And, you know, I became intrigued by that because you know, I know that they really loved each other and it's sad because they were in the same field of musicians and they used to sit by the piano and discuss music and I began to become interested in the theory, the, the, the theme of, you know, kind of creative rivalry in a family that had lots of artists and how it passed through generations and that was the subject matter that I wrote about in Tetro and, and got to make and um, Alden plays uh, when I met Alden, he was 17 and, and um, played a young man going to look for an older brother who had left his family in a huff. That was the, and, and we made the film in Argentina. Oh, we have a clip? Okay, we have a clip. How come you say I'm your friend and not your brother? Do you speak Spanish? Enough to understand that. People around here don't know much about me. Miranda doesn't even know who our father is. I'd like to keep it that way. I don't care, yeah. What? It's just, it's gonna be kinda hard to have a conversation if I can't ask any questions. And who wants a conversation? Not me. Permiso? So why'd you come here, Benny? I don't like questions. Hey. Don't do me. Do you. I'll do me. Okay? It's just, it's not fair. You left, you never came back and got me, and I didn't even get, like, an explanation. And you're my brother? Okay, let's hold uh, any more clips because I would really like to hear what's on the mind of our audience and what they'd like to talk about. Does anyone have a question? Just raise a hand. I see a first fellow was over there by the loudspeaker. If you say the question, I'll repeat it. You actually have a microphone going oh, on oh, too. Oh, good. I, I was just wondering about why black and white and when the decision been made. About when, when did the what? The decision to shoot it in black yeah. and white. Well, 
This is one of those questions because to me, black and white is one of the elements you get to choose when you want to make a film. You decide, oh, what's the style going to be? Is it going to be a moving camera all the time? Is it going to be a static camera? Is it going to be black and white? Is it going to be color? Unfortunately, black and white, I don't know how many of you realize it, but the reason very few, if any, films are made in black and white is because a rule came down from the television companies that if they showed a black and white film on television, they'd only pay half as much as if they were going to show a color film, which is why the big um, to-do about colorization came up, because certain people who owned a lot of black and white films said, we'll colorize it. But, I mean, it's a sort of absurd rule, uh, because it implies that Eight and a half is not as good as the Pink Panther, only because one is in color and the other is in black and white. Um, but it came because the television company that is a secondary market of film will pay half, then it means the producers who want to lay off all the risk say to people who want to make a film, don't make it in black and white. because uh, So the only way you can use black and white is if you, as in the case of this film, you just finance it yourself and say, I realize we're not going to get our money back, but black and white is not just the absence of color. Black and white is another style. It's a different philosophy of photography. It has different lighting. And just as you go to an art gallery and buy a beautiful black and white print or a color print, irrespective of that one's worth more than the other, uh, equally so. I mean, certain films might be better in black and white only because the director feels comfortable that that... And yes, I made the decision to shoot in black very early. I mean, when I wrote the script, I felt it should be... Also, there is color in the picture used uh, so, so that in contrast to the black and white, uh, the past is in color because you learn sort of what happened in the family and that, that's, that's usually in color. Yes, right here I see. Just shout it out and I'll repeat. Okay. Well, she asked me to speak a little more about black and white. Obviously, when you photograph a scene in color, if you have, a, if I have a, whatever this pink shirt against a, 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 another a color, the color separates all the levels of the picture when in black and white, you just have many gradations of gray. And so you're, you're obligated to separate everything through lighting and modeling, which, which has produced a whole um, tradition of a, of a look to black and white that, uh, you know, from, from also, you know, arguably the, probably the 90 greatest movie, percent of the greatest movies were made in black and white for us. So we have a lot of association with films that are in black and white uh, that, that um, because that was all that was available. And when color did come about, it was Technicolor, which was a much more vivid, garish kind of color, but beautiful, but not especially realistic. So to me, I think of films like Rocco and His Brothers or, or um, uh, any Kazan film, Baby Doll, as being sort of, not Baby Doll, because that's sort of wonderfully wacky, but viewed from the bridge or, or um, on the waterfront rather as being almost more realistic even though it's totally not realistic because life has color and, um, and, and, and black and white um, isn't really realistic but it seems to inspire a kind of reality or, or uh, 
you know, believability. Yes. Hey, could we Actually, lift the house lights a little bit so I can see the people I'm talking come to? Come on down so we don't have any feedback next to them. Could, could, could you make the folks in the audience a little, yeah, okay, just so I could see who I'm talking to. Yes. The first question is how long did it take your time to, to develop your script? And the second question is how did you find your Tetro and uh, what was, how you, how is it like you have your clique? This is like your Tetro, this is your character. And the third question is, um, <laughs> what is your relationship with the musical background? How you find your music for your films? At what stage you know what Wait, music let, Let's start work? with the first question because I don't know. No, stay there. What was the first question? How, how, do, how long um, does it take to write? Right, yes. Well, writing is interesting uh, process. For me, it's the most enjoyable one, and I'm sure there's some people here who, who write or who want to write. Some of the things I learned about writing is it's very important to select, a, a, for me, a time of day when I really feel comfortable and, and happy to work. For me, it's early in the morning. And, and, and the reason is that, you know, seven in the morning or eight o'clock, I haven't gotten a phone call yet. No one's hurt my feelings. So kind of emotionally, I'm, I'm just happy to, for a new day and I have slept so I have a lot of energy and I'd like to have a place where I have, uh, I have uh, a nice view out the window and I have some coffee and it's a pleasure to be there. And it's very important for writing that you go every day and you put in your four hours six days a week. That writing is something that if you do it in that way you really get better and you really start to Connect. Some say that it's so, so because your muse knows where you'll be. <laughs> so, you know, he's going to be there at 7 o'clock in that place, so I'm going to go visit him. Um, secondly, a little tip that maybe might be helpful is when I, when I do get going and I'm writing, and say I write in a, in a four-hour period of six pages, I always put the pages down and I never read them. And, and that's partly because I really believe that young writers in particular uh, must, when they're writing, have a hormone secreted in their blood that makes them hate what they've just written. So, so I, by not reading the pages, you don't say, God, I gotta rewrite that, because that's a trap. Because if you have to, if you don't like what you did and you go back and you're gonna rewrite it, you're not gonna be going forward. Uh, so, I, uh, so I just kind of put the six pages down as a result. I think it's good, because I haven't read it. And I just am happy all day, and I'm anxious to get there the next morning at 7 o'clock, and I do the same thing. And, you know, maybe 20, 30 pages in, I might be a little... Because I don't outline very carefully. I have a general idea. But I pretty much like to get in an emotional state and have the characters start behaving in unusual ways that I didn't expect. Uh, and um, maybe 30 pages in, I might just then go and outline a little bit, make the next few steps, you know, say, one, he's going to meet her at the restaurant, two, this is going to happen, three, that's going to happen, but just, just a part. And then I go and I keep getting in that, that trance of writing. And then finally, when I've come to the end of whatever this may be, I then on a day, I really am happy, I relax, and I read it. And then it's really a revelation because you see, good thing I didn't read the first 15 pages at the beginning because I'm going to cut them out. <laughs> and the story really, or the piece really started deeper in. 
And then I make my notes, and then I begin what becomes many, many, many rewrites. Uh, second question was uh, about the characters. How do you know that this is the character, or how did... Well, I was writing about stuff that, whereas it was fiction, it was very personal. It is like six characters in search of an author. The, 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 when you get going in this routine, the characters start doing things you didn't quite intend or saying things you wouldn't have thought they would have said. Or 20 pages in, and this is an interesting tip, you might think that the main guy, the main character who's a guy, should be a girl. Well, don't go back to the beginning and set that up. Just continue along as though it were a girl because uh, for me, avoid going back and start taking the thing apart again because you, you've achieved something with such power when you get to the end. It makes you feel good and you are in a better position to understand how you want to rewrite it. And the third question was about music. Music is sort of like what we were saying about photography. There are many, many approaches you could take to the music, you know, conversation, a film I made had only one piano. Um, other, other films might want a more symphonic kind of uh, Miklas Rosa score, or it might be source music, as American Graffiti was the pioneer. And so it's like, it's like the millions of decisions the writer and the director and the actors have to make. For me, many of them I make just from my gut, you know, because being a director, they're always saying, well, do you want her to wear in dress or in jeans? Should she have long hair or short hair? Should he have a beard or no beard? And many of them you just say, yes, no, yes, no. But sometimes you don't know the answer, and that's why when I'm working on a piece, I usually like to have a word or a few words that sum up the theme. Uh, in, in Tetro, it was rivalry. In The Godfather, it was succession. In the conversation, it was privacy. And so when they say to me, well, what kind of raincoat should he wear? Say it's the conversation. And I don't know the answer. I say, well, the movie's about privacy. So could we have one that you see through? So that your theme can help you decide what kind of music. The conversation, I thought it was about a very lonely man. And so maybe a solo piano might sum it up. So I think those were the three questions. And Harlan, I'll turn the... Well, I'm glad you turned it um, over to sort of some thematic discussions because I thought I'd refocus things uh, on that for just a few minutes. And by the way, we'll get back to uh, taking questions from all of you in just a little while. Um, <clears throat> certainly, thematically, uh, there's something about having a renegade son versus a giant of a father that has coursed through a number of the movies that you said. Uh, the Godfather, you call it about succession, it is, but there's a, a, a certainly a, a, a triangularity uh, between uh, an overwhelming father and, um, and his young sons, uh, all of whom, uh, one of whom is, is, is meant to succeed, the other are, are, are witnesses. It's true also in a, in a bit of a stretch, the conversation where Harry Call certainly has gone renegade, and if you think about it, uh, films like Apocalypse Now, the, which you adapted from Conrad, has a renegade son out there in a cave, and they're sending the so-called good son to go in and deal with the problem. Tucker is a renegade son of the automobile industry. You couldn't be any more sort of timely than, than, than that. And while this is not your only 
um, interest or mood, uh, it's something that you're really comfortable with addressing this question, working with it, uh, and you've worked with it over time. And so I'm curious about what um, attracted you back to this uh, discussion and this project um, uh, where you feel like you still have more to say about it. Well, you know, I always loved those kind of uh, heart-wrenching movies like uh, Rocco and His Brother, or even On the Waterfront. I mean, Ilya Kazan had such beautiful acting in his movies, and there were sometimes these scenes and, 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 and characters. I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for the split loyalty or the heart-wrenching decision where you've got to, you know, uh, do something that you don't want to do with someone you really love, but you have to do it. So. I thought, yeah, I wish I could make a really emotional film that would... I, I feel I'm an emotional guy, but I don't feel that I've expressed so much how um, that... And, and so I deliberately chose something that made me emotional when I thought about it and wrote about it, which was my family, because my family... Your family is, you know, where you learn what love is, and, and, uh, and ultimately, when someone you love hurts your feelings or you hurt their feelings, that's heart-wrenching. So I, I wanted to make an emotional f film, and, um, and that led me back to looking at my feelings about my father, my brother, my uncles. Uh, my father wasn't, in, in, in this movie, the father is a kind of symphonic, sort of a monster. My father, any of you who have ever lived in a household where the father was frustrated in his work, wasn't getting his break or his due or... You know, the, 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 to live in a house where the father is uh, unfulfilled is, is really emotional for the kids, I think. And it was for me. My father was a very talented musician who was not getting the opportunity that he, we wanted him to have. Once when I was a kid, I worked for Western Union and I, I um, you know, I would cut the, in those days the telegrams would come in a long strip and I'd glue them on the thing and on my bicycle deliver them. And I'd sit there all day waiting for a telegram, and I once wrote a telegram to my father. said, Dear Carmen Coppola, please come to L.A. immediately. You're hired to write the score of the new film, Spaceship Over Venus. Uh, immediately begin to see the film. Sincerely, Louis Lipstone, whom I knew as a kid was the head of Paramount. And I went and I delivered it to him. And then I had, of course, he was so happy and... We're going to California, I got my big break, and then I had to tell him it wasn't true. But I realized as a, as a, kid, I, I, as a kid, I just wanted him to get his break, and the happy ending is that later when I did The Godfather, I was able to hire my own father and see him be successful, which is all I ever wanted. So my family was a real um, uh, you know, cauldron of emotion for me, and that's why I went back to look at them, albeit through a fictional story. Um. Well, you said it, it's very personal, and the film plays very personally. I don't know if, if Francis told you, or if you're all hip to this anyway, that it, it, this opened the Cannes Zen, the 40th anniversary of the director's fortnight uh, in Cannes just this past month in May where it got a huge standing ovation for Francis. And you know, it's the renegade director's sort of section where people really appreciate people who are willing to take uh, uh, chances and make a, a risky and edgy film. This, 
Um, but the film comes across partly very, very personal, as you mentioned. And I, I started thinking, obviously, you would think about something, aspects about your relationship to your father, but it also struck me that in some ways you, uh, clearly it's an assertion of family. Uh, and when you get all the way through the film, you have felt that, um, that the film lands on an assertion of family and that, um, that this is, it was personal to you as if you were saying something to your children, all of your children. And I wonder how much of that figured in your own sort of writing because it's your first script in some 35 years since I think the conversation, is it not? So it, it, this is really that begging your pardon really does come one from the heart and it seems to me that maybe you could expound on that a bit. Well, I had noticed that if you had uncles who were in the same field and there were rivalries, because obviously if a lot of people are in the creative field, that one brother may be more successful than the other and richer, uh, and, and inevitably this causes hurts, and, and, and you know why doesn't the successful one help the less successful one more, especially if he believes it and learned everything from him? And then I noticed that could it be passed on through other generations so that you even see it with the nephews? I mean, uh, you know, there's obviously in my family there are many famous actors and, and directors and some are very famous and very rich and some are less known and not so rich and you always wonder, well, God, is that almost like a gene or is that the oresteia of talent that there's got to be these um, rivalries? And that's... In a way, that was the theme that I was expressing, perhaps, to my children, that, you know, be close to one another, be interested in each other's careers, help each other. My son and my daughter, for other reasons, are very, very tight, and my son Roman always goes when Sophia makes a film and shoots her second unit and does a lot of the dirty work, uh, as he's helped me as well, and Sophia is incredibly supportive of him. So in my own family, hopefully that gene hasn't been passed on but you know there are many other people in our family uh, and, and sometimes they are at odds over this and that reason and I do I do um, I do hope that those rivalries I mean we should be proud of our family and, and if there are a lot of accomplished people then all the more we should make sure we get together every Christmas the whole family and see excerpts of each other's films or whatever it is and that doesn't always happen part of it's just geography that they all live but you know it's true i i, I do um i do think that the, that these various i was making this film to understand it myself and as you say i mean in the end the film is about my love of my family i mean there's an old character an old uncle the old one of the old uncles who says you know what has happened to our family we loved each other so much what came between what came between us you know we were so promising uh, and this is a common story even in families. Uh, I read the story of the family that invented the sweet and low, the sweetener. is <laughs> a book about that family. And it's the same thing. is who got the money, who didn't, who invented the formula, who was the son who tried to sell it to the mafia to package cocaine in it. And it was a very interesting book. But it could be the same family. It is the same family. It's our family. Let's uh, rope this character into it a little bit. Um, a lot of people in looking at the film obviously see sort of echoes of Rumblefish and uh, the two brothers, Rusty James and Motorcycle Boy, and the, you know, the, the color palette and all of that. Um, 
tell me a little bit of how you went out looking for, for cast and found Alden to play the sort of Rusty James uh, update 30 years later. Well, one thing about casting is, you know, I love it when someone's supposed to be 18 and they look 18. I never felt that James Dean looked like he was going to high school in Rebel, Rebel Without a Cause. He always looked like he was you know, much too old. And, and, and so I go out of my way to find, like in Apocalypse, Larry Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne was 14 when we cast him because we wanted to be sure that the idea was that those kids out there fighting in Vietnam were like really young, it was 17. So Alden, when I met him, was 17 and uh, hadn't done anything. Very precocious, wonderful to talk to. Well, I'll, maybe I'll ask uh, Alden, what, how was that audition? What did you do? Or um, uh, First I came in and we had a general conversation and we just talked about movies and uh, my where I grew up and whatnot. And then um, Francis had me come back and read a monologue out of Catcher in the Rye. And so we did that. Um, and he sort of asked me questions and I didn't know whether he was really asking me as the character or as myself and sort of did a little improvisation. Um, and then I went to the vineyard in Napa and did a screen test there. Uh, and then we went to Argentina and did a four day screen test of doing all this improvisations and, and all these interesting games. And the first day I got there, he had me uh, direct a group of Argentine actors in this two-page little Ionesco play and they didn't speak English and there was a translator but she didn't really speak English and uh, you know it was really kind of terrifying and uh, and then I just got to spend time with Francis and ask him questions about film and and do different games and then then I got the part and I think one of the factors is that in my situation very often I can't either afford the you know, the star of the day. I can't maybe get through the agents and the managers, and certainly I can't deal with the work conditions. I mean, I need the actor to be there for rehearsal for a couple of weeks and be there the whole time. I don't, you know, it's not like he can fly in for three weeks or not. So often we're, we're forced to discover a new actor or use a fallen actor. Like in the days we cast Marlon Brando, he was, he was poisoned. Uh, in the mines because he had made a big, big flop and he was supposedly very difficult on the set. So you either can use the totally new actor, which is why our company has discovered so many new actors because we, we, it's all we can afford. We couldn't even afford some of the actors we discovered then after they became stars, you know, and, and so you have to find new ones. Or I guess Marlon was definitely uh, a, a great star and actor who had fallen on tough times, but Vincent Gallo was a very intriguing guy, interesting guy. And I didn't know him, but I knew everyone said, don't cast him, you're crazy if you cast him. And I called him up and asked him if he would come and spend a week with me, and it turned out he was extremely intelligent and a weird sense of humor, which is what I think gets him in trouble. Uh, but on the picture, he was a pleasure. He was, a, you know, Alden really enjoyed listening to his stories about New York and art and the fashion world, and they became like brothers. And I'd have to say he was a pleasure to work with, a wonderful collaborator. So that's kind of how the casting worked. You know what I'd like to do here is uh, go to another clip. And the clip I'd like to go to, if you can pull it up for me, is the clip of Tetro and Miranda in the cafe. Can you bring that up? 
Miranda was the Spanish actress Maribel Verdú. Every one of our cast has some interesting aspect. Hers was that the entire role was the most dialogue in English of anyone, and she didn't speak any English. You all know her from Me Too Mama, uh, Tambien. I don't want Benny to save me. I don't want anyone to save me. But this is exactly what he had hoped for. What will cure you? You think this will cure me? Absolutely. Am I not okay the way that I am? Not famous enough? Of course. I had a girlfriend once who was very impressed with famous people. And one day, a very famous person took her away, stole her from me. But it means so, so much to us. You know, your success, Tedro, to, to any, to your friends, to me as well, yes. I understand this is your way of showing love. Success is what you need, Tetro. Actually, there are a lot of scenes in movies, car crashes, gunfights, shooting, uh, all kinds of stuff like that, but, you know, we, we didn't want to show that to you today. Well, um, this is a, a, it's a wonderfully quiet scene, actually, in a movie that in some ways does have all those things. It's just that not in the way that you normally expect to see them. And that is that um, the film in, is highly operatic. I mean, not only from the choice of putting in Hoffman's Tales of Offenbach um, as a kind of a, uh, a play or opera within uh, the play, but there are big emotions that are expressed by these people um, on screen, big confrontations. Um, and in some ways, I was curious then about what did you think about the conventions of opera that lend it, would lend itself to cinema? Well, it's, it's about the family of a great uh, conductor. So clearly, uh, although the father remains sort of off screen for much of the movie, you see the impression it has on his kids, you know, being the child of a world-famous egotist. <laughs> and and uh, ultimately, as he does, you do learn more, then the music becomes more uh, symphonic music, and that lends, of course, to it feeling operatic. But the emotions are operatic, because it's a it's, uh, it's emotional stuff, what the story is dealing with, and the passions are more operatic. And that combined with uh, later the, the more symphonic music tends to, to be, um, you know, much of the film is shot in Argentina, a place in, in Buenos Aires called La Boca, which is kind of like Little Italy or Harlem, and it's a place where the rents were cheap and the immigrants first came, and so the artists all live because of all, you can afford an apartment, and uh, it, La Boca is full of bohemian artists, a lot of theater, and that's what where these characters 
live. But yes, the, the motions maybe are, are extravagant as you associate with an operatic story. And, and, and I'm very familiar with that because I was raised in with this stuff playing on the... I wasn't allowed to listen to... Uh, uh, splish splash! I was taking a bath. I had to listen to uh, you know La Traviata or or uh, or uh, Wagner, even worse. Uh, I, I just want to say is great. one thing about that scene in particular: um, that the shot of Miranda of Maribel's character in that scene. We were at lunch one day, and Mihai, the cinematographer, who's so brilliant, was just sitting, and he took a photo. And you can actually see this on Tetro.com if you go to the website. But he took a photo of this girl sitting at a table, and the light was sort of coming into the window, and he found it very beautiful. And that is, is literally, it's this, we shot it at the same cafe where we had had lunch that day, and it's the exact framing of that shot that he just saw and, and recreated for the film. You know, I want to make a quick statement about production style is that, you know, in the big industry, uh, you know, where I had much of my career, it, there's a philosophy of like sort of one style fits all, that all productions are broken down in the same way and you have a kind of chain of command, you have the photographer and you have the casting office and you have the studio. So really all films are made under the same auspices in the same style. One thing I always realized from my experience with Roger Corman was that, you know, I mean, you could take 10 little eight-year-old kids and say, okay, give two of them a camera and say, you're the photographer and you're going to do the music and you're going to do the costumes and let's go out and make a movie. And if it was about the right story, theme, that might be a wonderful way to make a movie, but that was sort of suiting the production method to fit the story you're making, which is the opposite of the big-time movie business. In a way, we were there in Buenos Aires, a small group, and as he said, we were hanging out with each other all the time because we didn't have a street full of trailers to go into your trailer. I didn't have a trailer, and I figured if the director didn't have a trailer, we wouldn't have to get them for the actors. Consequently, we were always sitting together looking and kidding around, and, and in a way, that was work too because we would... If you're available to what's happening in reality around you, that often can be used in the movie. And so lots of scenes, or as he said, Mihai saw the shot, or I saw Vincent telling uh, Alden about something in the New York art scene, and, and, and then we based the scene on that. So that if the style of the production was this more informal one, and you're always observing to see how you could incorporated into the movie that's that's a that's the way we made it and a legitimate a legitimate way to go i you know i can remember 30 years ago you were among the really first major american directors to talk about a digital future coming to cinema and you were well known for that is this what you'd envisioned that it would look like and now that it's come to fruition how has it impacted your ability to to film and and ultimately the style of the film i have to say the, some, the two most interesting films at Cannes this year, this and Michael Hanukkah's White Ribbon, were both shot in digital and black and white and both had extraordinary imagery, which, by the way, we should cue up in a minute after we get done with this little piece here. Um, talk to that, if you, if you will. About, uh, well, you know, I, I was a boy scientist as a kid. I, I loved to read about the scientists. And uh, so in high school I was always interested in, in I guess what you today call technology and that took me to the theater department because 
lighting uh, and, and theater technology was something I, I could be good at, and that's where the girls hung out. There were girls in the theater department, and I wanted to be in the vicinity because I was always the new kid in the school. And um, as, as a result, in my early career, uh, you know, I was sure that the cinema was going to be electronic. And, and there were many, many reasons why that would be good, albeit we love film. Film has been with cinema from the beginning and is at the apogee of its beauty. But if there could be uh, an electronic cinema, it would be much more like sound. You could compose with it. You, you, it wouldn't be a, 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 a photochemical thing that you cut and spliced. You would be able to work with film to a new level, and that implied all of the digital wonders of special effects and, and, and what has all come to pass. So back then in the 60s, we were predicting electronic editing and even built some of the early Apocalypse Now was cut in large part on an electronic machine that we built ourselves. And then very rapidly, once, um, once the computer became the home base of editing as it exists with Final Cut Pro, once you could compress visuals so that it could go and live inside the computer and manipulate it in there, of course, this is all what has happened, is even old news, and now, we're on the verge of, of there being electronic projection in all the movie theaters, I think already 2,000 theaters, and, and electronic pro projection is today, on that level of professional equipment, fantastic. And, you know, I really believe that within six, seven years, uh, you know, film will not be used because it wouldn't even be available. Now, my daughter, Sophia, wouldn't touch a digital camera with a 10-foot pole because, like so many young people, who are passionate about film because they want to be part of something that was such a fabulous history, you know, to touch film in the way that the masters did. And I love that about young people and I totally understand it. And it's also deep down in their heart, they know they are gonna lose it. For me, it's different because I always imagined what filmmaking might be with this, this quicksilver nature of electronic or digital cinema, and I have to say that it's all come true. There are extraordinary um, cameras, projectors, uh, of course you know what can be done with uh, digital effects, you see it abused every Friday night in the multiplex, and so I would have to say that of course uh, it's arrived, but obviously digital capability is just the servant of ideas and the emotions of the people making the films. I don't know, have, ever, have any of you ever seen that absurd speech I made at the Oscars around 30 years ago? Did anyone ever happen to see a clip of that? It's really funny. You saw it? Yeah. I don't remember anything, so why don't you tell the story? No, no, I won't, I won't bore you with it, but well, someday I'll tell you a story about that. It's very funny, but I did blurt out just before we gave, I was the presenter. I had no business saying anything except that now the award goes to Michael Cimino, who, which is who, when that was. But for reasons that will someday be known, I turned to the audience and I said to everyone, and now I want to tell everyone that we're on the eve of a wonderful revolution in which things will be possible that the forebear, the, our ancestors would never have thought and you'll be able to do this and that and so on. So however, it must all be the servant of you, and then the whole academy audience is like, <laughs> what is this guy talking? And Ali McGraw, who was the co-presenter, and she said, but before this happens, we will now give the award for best director. 
You were right. Um, uh, what I told them was true, but... Now let's take a look at, at it and see how beautiful it is. You know, I can't tell you how many uh, cinematographers I've talked to who, you know, established guys who've resisted this, didn't want to go there. Do you find that their resistance is less, less, or do you, is it easier to go to a young guy like Mihai who basically it's in their DNA and he knows how to use it and that there's no resistance, he understands what can, can do with it, what he can do with it? There's the real reasons behind, the resistance <clears throat> against digital filmmaking is, of course, emanates from Eastman Kodak. Eastman Kodak had the opportunity 30 years ago, 25 years ago, to see what was happening and to anticipate that one day uh, all imaging would be digital, but the electronic, and they didn't do it. And, and then, of course, eight years ago or 10 years ago, every still camera in the world suddenly became digital overnight, and it shocked Eastman Kodak. And they then leaped into making uh, digital equipment or, or servicing digital imagery. So the resistance from the cinematographer is as much political as it is anything. I don't know how much time you want to say on this, but you have to realize that as we speak, the cinematographer is the most powerful man on the set in terms of the operations of the set. When I was young, the first thing I used to do when I was going to make a film is I'd hire the key grip. The key grip is sort of the chief stagehand. And I did that because I come from the Roger Corman school in which we know that the grips power the show, meaning if you want to move fast and your grip is allegiance is to you, if you say, okay, Chuck, the next shot is up there eight feet, we're going to shoot from there, before you know it, the camera's up there. And that was a way to control the physical reality of shooting. In the last 10 years, uh, photographers, cinematographers, and their team, the grip, the, 
gaffer who's the head lighting guy, the operator, that little five or six guys go right from movies into commercials. And then right from commercials to the next specialty job and then to the next film. So the crews are totally loyal, as they would be, to the cinematographer rather than normally the director. So that when you're a director today and you say, okay, let's go the next shot, we're going to be over there, the grip looks at the photographer and the photographer comes over and says, well, I mean, are you sure you want to do that now if we have the window here with the light? So in other words, the photographer now is the one who gives the final, I mean, you could say, listen, put the camera there. But politically and, and the way it works. Also remember that the photographer probably on a big film makes $40,000, $50,000 a week, whereas the art director, arguably the production designer, an equal creative contributor, makes $7,000 a $10,000. So what does that mean? It means that the photographer, because traditionally no one saw the image until the preview the next day, the rushes, that there's a lot of magic in him with his light meter and no one really knows if it's going to come out so he becomes extremely important uh, that he can do this magic and in fact the movie comes out the next day it is beautiful with the digital image it already exists you can see it it looks just like it's going to look and you say hey what are we waiting for look it's fine let's go so there's a loss of there's a loss of and with that goes equipment rental because the cinematographer determines everything rental is a big financial aspects. So as you can imagine, this position of power, whether they realize it or not, some don't want to give it up because no question the digital environment levels the field between all the creative contributors. And that has something to do with the resistance that you have felt from the organi organization of cinematography. Well, um Walter Murch, who's edited with you ever since the conversation, Apocalypse Now, Youth Without Youth, you know, he's um, uh, now working with this stuff, right? Final Cut Pro. He was so, the, Walter Murch is the first professional big deal editor to uh, edit a professional big deal movie, namely Cold Mountain on Final Cut Pro, which is what you're all using, and, and demonstrated that, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's can, it can do the job. And he's made the transition and likes it. Does it empower an editor more to be able to now edit in Final Cut Pro rather than on the old system? Well, the old system was the Avid, and it was essentially the same non-linear editing system, so I can't say that it empowers the editor more, but certainly Final Cut Pro gives everyone more democratically the means. I mean, an Avid machine costs probably $150,000, although because of the adoption of Final Cut Pro, even Avid has now come out with a system more comparable, and, and which is probably also good. But, you know, cinema is becoming democratized. People, you can get a $3,000 camera that would look fine for what you want to do, and you do Final Cut Pro, and... Uh, soon Final Cut Pro will have added features that give it a form of Pro Tools, those of you who are, uh, which is sound, sort of. And, I mean, basically, you can all make movies today, and, and, and now what you've got to get some experience on is the writing and the acting, because to the extent that you're going to use acting, you need to know a little bit about, uh, you know, how to help actors a, a, a achieve the scene you want. I made a promise to the audience to have a few more questions, so yeah. why don't we do that? 
Um, There's a fellow raised first right there, the tall guy who's waving his hand. We're never going to get uh, a mic to you, but we're going to... Just shout it out and I'll repeat it. There you go. Okay. Uh, due to the political correctness that's going on now, uh, you can't show a guy smoking, too much drinking, had enough sex, blow the neck. Are you, in, are you embarrassed by this? Or is it scary to you that, that films now are much more politically correct as opposed to He's saying, you know, films are more politically correct. You can't show smoking. You can't show certain taboo subjects that we're we're getting a little uh, where political corruptness is is that frightening to a guy like me? Obviously, you know, I've always resisted political correctness because I feel like so many mass ideas it can it can uh, it can block the expression and block good things. I, I agree that every time I see somebody walking down the street who's under 30 smoking, it breaks my heart because I see they're starting on a habit so young that they're going to have to stop because it will kill them. So on one hand, if you have romantic characters or cool characters, Vincent smokes throughout this entire movie, to what extent is that doing what I wish wouldn't happen, which was have young people get into the habit. On the other hand, young people have to be savvy and know that that's, they have to make their decision that if you want to write about certain behavior and express in a real way uh, people doing that, I, I, I definitely, I mean, the nice thing about political correctness is they don't send the cops. So. You have to defy where you feel political correctness is wrong and, and, and you just don't buy into it. At least they're not going to arrest you or pound the film. So just resist and, you know, make films, make films with your heart. You know, that's what you're supposed Films are supposed to be handmade and heartfelt. And if you do that, that's often, you know, you know I love people and I think people in the end really have good instincts and, and, and you have to trust the filmmakers to interpret political uh, correctness in, the, in, a, in a sensible way. Well, a question right over here. Uh, I'm 16 years old and I would say, I want to ask, like, what advice would you give to someone my age who wants to make movies? 16? Yes. Well, a, a really good advice I would think is, I mean, granted, you know, shooting, uh, making short films and little 16 miller or I mean video films which you can get the equipment that's wonderful and I'm sure you do that but what I would advise that you maybe aren't doing is hook up with a couple of friends and do some one-act plays because one-act plays um, is a way of having writing and acting come together in front of an audience and you'll learn more from that at your age if you for if you got a bunch of friends who like that or, or you know you could do either write a one-act play or every major playwright, uh, American, Russian, what have you, have written a whole wonderful bunch of one-act plays. Pick one that has only two actors in it, that's only a few pages, and practice working with actors. And if you have some friends that want to do that, have a couple other plays, and then you can put an evening of one-act plays on for the neighbors. You'll get more out of seeing how stories or situations with actors play in front of an audience that way without having to shoot and edit and go through all the time and indirect work that is involved. And, and that experience will serve you really, really well. If at your age you do some one-act plays, you'll learn a lot. Hi, I'm Gina. 
like to ask you a question about your future. You talked about the first, the first film you did recently that was about philosophy, and this one was more personal. What do you see your future being now? What are you looking for in the next project? Well, aside from death, <laughs> uh, my future, as I see it, is that, you know, in a way, I feel Tetro really it was good for me to deal with some of these themes related to my family. I think whenever, as I said, when you make a film, you learn. In a way, the script is like asking a question and making the film is getting the answer. So I feel very, I don't feel I have to go back. I went back twice to this story of two brothers because obviously it, it's, it's very meaningful to me. But now I feel a little bit, I'm writing a new script and I feel sort of like it's a clean sheet of paper that I can approach some other aspects that I've wondered about and certainly get to maybe make a film unlike the ones I've made. You know, you're typecast in Hollywood. If you make a gangster picture, you get offered a lot of gangster pictures. If you make a war film, they only think of you in that. But there are other kinds of films I always kind of wanted to try. And so now I'm, I'm writing something, it's also personal in that it deals with maybe some, who knows, phobias or weird thoughts that maybe I dream about, but I'm anxious to learn more about myself and I'm putting it in the format of a, what could be a, a, an exciting film, different than anything I've done and, and, uh, and so I'm trying that. Another advice to a writer is when people ask you what you're writing, don't tell them too much because it's like letting the steam out of the pressure cooker. And if you tell people about your, your, your piece, then it's, it's, it's nice when what you're writing is a big secret that you're going to spring on everyone. It gives, you, it gives you the impetus to go back to it every time. We have time for uh, two more questions. Um, on behalf of latinosandentertainment.com, I wanted to know what made you choose Argentina as the setting for the story, and did its place as the intersection of two great cultures, the Spanish and the Italian, have something to do with that? Well, first of all, you know, um, arguably the great literary event of the last 80, 60 years happened in Latin America. I mean, in America, we used to be thrilled to, to read the new Saul Bellow novel or the new Hemingway novel. I mean, now in our culture, it's so copied this mass marketing of movies that now even our literature is based on whether it's a bestseller or not. The same problem that filmmakers have that people only want to finance something that's familiar and was like very much something that's already been done that was successful. But Latin America, for lots of reasons we don't have time to talk about, though it's interesting, had this incredible fertile period of, of novelists and poets, uh, Argentina, Borges, Cotarzar, uh, uh, Mario Vargas Llosa, Marquez, poets, Octavio Paz, Carlo Fuente, Roberto Bolaño, who's only recently been discovered, uh, unfortunately, after he passed away. So I was attracted to Latin America because I, you know, I wanted to write. I wanted to, uh, once in my life, really be uh, do this thing that I'd always loved and admired. So I went to where it was being done. Also, based on the Roger Corman philosophy of movie making, uh, which is the you need to choose a place that the, uh, the currency exchange is okay in your favor, like the dollar is going to be able, you're going to be able to make a movie somewhere, whereas in Europe or uh, somewhere where the dollar is so weak you can't, 
and also that has a great cultural tradition. Argentina is a big city. Uh, as, as the young lady says, it was very influenced by immigration, so it fit into my story. But also Italians really set a lot of the character there. Uh, Italian immigrants who came. Uh, also, uh, you know, the Argentine people have had some tough luck over the last th 30 years, and so it's made them, as a people, you know, really stick together and, 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 and go out in the evening and go to a restaurant and enjoy themselves because, you know, life is short and just because you have some tough political or economic times that doesn't, makes you more drawn to your friends and your family. So there's a wonderful camaraderie there. And, and it was a, a place that I thought I would like to go to for, I was there well over a year and learn a little of the language and, 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 and learn something about another culture. And, uh, you know, part filmmaking is like you're being an adventurer. And so the idea of going to another country and, and really coming to know it is very exciting. So all those reasons conspired to this method of uh, of choosing another country, Bucharest was similar for me, Argentina, God knows where I'll go next. Right over here again. Hi, um, my name is Melanie Shiel and I'm a filmmaker from NYU Tish Asia, which is based in Singapore. And firstly, I just want to thank you so much for being here. This is a really wonderful opportunity to just hear about your experiences. So thank you, firstly. Um, and um, my main question is, you already kind of spoke to this a little bit in detail about just the, the great importance and role of the cinematographer. And what I would like to know is just a little bit more about your process as a director with the cinematographer, your collaboration. Do you shot, shot list and storyboard every shot or do you allow for some spontaneity on set? Well, um, I don't storyboard a lot. Uh, I, I will storyboard uh, and start myself with some stupid little sketches or uh, not having the talent, I would go to someone who is better at it, but only certain sequences which I think the storyboard will help explain to all the collaborators what we're going to try to do. It might involve uh, like something that involves more, more uh, that needs cooperation between special effects and wardrobe and everyone, just so they're all on the same page of what we're going to attempt. That's the only time I'll use a storyboard. Uh, I, I was fortunate uh, when I make a film and go to a distant country. I'll, I'll be although I send all the equipment all prepackaged in the van it's going to work in. I don't bring any people with me. So if I go to Buenos Aires or if I go to Bucharest, I have no crew. Because one of the most expensive things about making movies are airplane tickets, hotel rooms, cars, telephone calls, food, per diem, all the normal stuff of life. So by going and using a 100% Romanian crew or a 100% Argentinian crew, uh, they're all going to go home and sleep in their own houses. And because I've chosen a place that has a great you know, love of culture, of theater, there's bound to be many, many people, and there are in, in certainly both those countries. And I'm, uh, uh, Secondly, I, um, with the photographer, I chose a 29-year-old uh, Romanian guy who did Youth Without Youth, and he was such a, a fine collaborator that I just took him with me to Argentina. And I said certain things to him. I said, you know, for the style I want to do, I don't ever want to move the camera. I, I think that sometimes I go to the movies, I get seasick, and you know, when the camera moves too much, then it, it in a way it null, nullifies the movement of the actors, because if the actor walks and the camera moves, 
There's a famous story of a, of a, a he was a theater director and he was hired, he was hired to come and direct the movie. I think it was George Cukor actually. And he set up the scene, it was a guy going uh, to his sweetheart going off in a train and she was in the window of the train, the guy was there, you know, weeping and stuff, and the director said, I want a dolly track so that as the train pulls out, he runs after and cries, and all the crew was looking at each other and stuff. And of course, when they saw the dailies, the train was there and the girl was going and the guy was there and nothing moved. The train never pulled out because as the train was pulling out, the camera was moving. So when the camera moves and the people move, in a way, nothing moves, and so by a, having a static style, for the, if you see this movie, look in the corner, If uh, please come and see it, <laughs> we need you to. But if you see the frame, you'll notice on most movies, the frame is always doing this, and if the people go up, it goes up, and if it goes down and stuff. My philosophy, that I, as I come to it in older age, because I've shot every style on earth in my life, is that when the frame is like a beautiful frame, like in a picture, then when the actors move or walk or come and go, and if they walk out of frame, let them go out of frame uh, and then have another shot in which they, that, that you don't know when you're the audience where the cuts are really, if you're at all into the story. So I found that in, in being able to talk to the photographer on these kinds of uh, concepts as it were, or how we were gonna handle and lighting, we looked at a lot of black and white movies, we looked at La Notte, we looked at uh, Baby Doll. We looked at other films or pictures that we thought were beautiful. And then he would go around while we were rehearsing or looking at locations and he was taking stills and already the film was starting to come alive in his mind. So that was sort of how we did the, um, the collaboration. I could tell you more and I will someday. You know, um, I love the fact that Tetro and Youth Without Youth is a journey film that talks about recovering one's voice as Tetro tries to do, get youth without youth, uh, goes after the root of language. Both characters are looking uh, to be able to love and lo or love again. <clears throat> They're small pictures, but they really are big picture. And I love the fact that you're taking these kinds of aesthetic risks. Um, it's really uh, thrilling to come to the third act in a career and not be afraid to take risks. And I think that uh, I stand in awe of that, and I really uh, mean that sincerely, and I'm really pleased that you are here to share your time with us, Francis. Well, thank you. On risk, I want to say one thing to all of you, because I see that everyone's pretty much young. And I would like to give you my philosophy of risk, which is the only risk that you take in your life is not to lose money or do I invest in Apple stock, that's always a good idea. But, but the only risk you take is that when you're old and you're about to die, you say, oh, I wish I had done that and I wish I had done that. Live your life so that at that moment you did everything you wanted to do because there is no other risk in life other than to have passed up your own desires, your own heart's wish. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's why I never was afraid of risk, because I figured, what can I lose? You know, I can't lose anything. And when I, when I die, I am convinced that I'm saying, oh, I got to make movies, and oh, I got to see my kids make movies, and I got to see my father win an Oscar, and I got to have a winery, and I had to have a hit picture, and, and I'm going to be so busy thinking of all the wonderful things, I'm not going to notice it when I die. Thank you. 
Thank you all for coming. Gentlemen, truly an honor here at the Apple Store in Soho.